It is so good to be with you this morning. Uh, again, it is good to be gathered together with God's people. It is good to uh, spend time in, in prayer this morning. I, I just I really appreciate uh, just being uh, led in, in, in prayer this, uh, this morning, just all the different requests that were brought up. To be able to plead before the Lord together as his people um, is, is a blessing that God gives us. And so that was uh, just ministered to my heart. Um, we are continuing our study through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, uh, and in particular, we've been uh, we're taking this, this heightened focus really on the first ten chapters or so of Jesus's ministry, uh, specifically there in Galilee, uh, before he makes that uh, final ascent up to Jerusalem. And it started by the, the triumphal entry, but it's, it's really Jesus's ministry there in Galilee that we're taking this this close look at, as Jesus, as we saw him. Uh, see him interacting with, uh, with the sick, interacting uh, with the helpless, if you will, uh, as we see his teaching ministry, as we see Jesus Christ before us, as he lived and breathed on this earth, and those things that he found essential to his earthly ministry uh, that he carried out before he would go uh, to the cross. Um, teaching us so much, not only uh, concerning Jesus, that we might know him more, know him better, but what that says to each and every one of us as well, uh, as we are called to be Christians, to be Christ followers, uh, to be those that see him and that serve others as Christ has served others as well. And so we are uh, in chapter 7, Mark 7, uh, we'll be taking a close look at verses 1 through uh, 30 this morning, but our, our scripture reading is going to be looking through uh, verses 1 through 23. Um, in the other section we'll, we'll, we'll go through as well together, but uh, just to shorten up the, the reading, uh, we'll be reading from Mark uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And uh, I, I invite you to please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. In Mark 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that, is going, that by going into him can defile him, 
but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, you have spoken to us uh, through your word. Lord, I pray that uh, just by the words of Jesus Christ, uh, that by the, the, the words of the Holy Spirit, uh, Lord, you would uh, prick our hearts with the truths that we need to hear. Uh, God, help us to not be uh, dull of mind uh, like the crowds or the Pharisees or the disciples at times as well, but I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear by your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Has there ever been a time that your expectations were just so very wrong about a situation? You went into something, you know, some situation with some kind of anticipation, and you were even preparing yourself for some kind of a result only to just get blown out of the water. Uh, A number of years ago, about 10, 12 years ago, uh, Chrissy and I, as well as my sister and one of my friends, uh, it was when Chris and I were living out in Wyoming, uh, but a friend of my sister, they they came out to visit us, and we spent a weekend out in Colorado in uh, Estes Park, and we went camping and hiking. And we were looking at the different hiking options that that were out there. Obviously, there were so many. And there was one hike that we decided on. It was one that it was pretty arduous. We were young and able-bodied. And it had a pretty high increase of elevation as well. And, um, and at the very end of this hike, there was going to be a lake up at the top of this, this clearing in the mountains. And so we, we were going there with these, these great expectations. And we're going up there, and even the climb was difficult. We had to, there were even breaks that had to be made because of the, the altitude change and just having to go up and up. And finally, after miles and miles that we hike up there, we were so looking forward to seeing this mountain lake and even having images of you know, certainly some fauna going around and being so beautiful and nice. If I were to tell you that this was a semi-large puddle, then I think I would be maybe under-exaggerating it. There wasn't much there. It was, just, it was indeed a body of water, uh, but there was not a whole lot going on around it. And so as we are you know, catching our breath, and, and, and you know, we, we finally made it. We are here at the top. I remember Christy and I in particular just kind of walking around it. We could do multiple laps around this body of water, just, just walking around it and just being like, oh, well, this was it. Not what we were expecting. We did all this, this work, this climb, all this effort that we put into this, and in reality, we, we kind of walked away maybe a little bit uh, disappointed. We had expectations of this beautiful, serene lake that was going to make the hike worth the struggle. However, our expectations were 
well off the mark. We thought the path we were on was leading to a certain conclusion, but we couldn't have been more wrong. And Jesus, here in our text, is exposing to the Pharisees and to all who hear his words that the path of outward religion, the path of simply keeping the rules, the path of prioritizing the traditions of man does not lead to the goal that one is probably expecting. And not only that, but the path they are on is not simply going to lead them to disappointment, but actually to destruction and condemnation. The path of life can at times be surprising because it is not about outward signs, but it is about inward purity. What we notice here from our text is that because it is the heart which truly defiles the man, it is not our practices than which cleanse us, but only the power of Christ who has the power to give us a new heart. This passage, you may have noticed, uh, there's a a word repeated seven times, the word defiled. Uh, And then even as we're we're outlining this, noticing the the defiled hands, practices, heart, and people, something that we're going to notice here over and over again. The word defiled uh, carries with it not just a statement of being you know, dirty as opposed to clean, but there's a, this, this natural moral association uh, with it as well. To be defiled is to be desecrated, uh, to be polluted, to be profaned. And we dug into this concept uh, really with the clean and unclean uh, whole kind of conversation a couple of weeks ago from Mark chapter 5 with a woman who was uh, bleeding and with a demoniac as well. These unclean people, demoniac living the tombs um, and the unclean spirit and also the woman, uh, again, that had the, uh, the, 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 the bleeding that was unclean, unable to go worship at the temple. It is something as we learn as well with being unclean, uh, something being defiled, it is transferable. Uh, we saw in Haggai 2, uh, mentions how touching a dead body makes you unclean. And the Pharisees considered themselves to be the guardians of this contagious pollution of worship and society. And so they saw the, they saw the disciples. They saw them with these, as well as these, these defiled hands. Uh, look, look there again in the text with, with verse 1. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Look down there in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? What do you do when you want to protect people from a dangerous object? Even thinking if you've ever had a babysitter, had young kids of your own, and there was a dangerous object, you'll sometimes maybe put some kind of guard around it, uh, some kind of fence around it. Or if you want to protect a people from coming too close to the fence, I think that the fence itself is dangerous, like an electric fence perhaps. 
that you thought they might accidentally climb the fence, you wanted to protect that very fence, what would you do? Perhaps you would build a fence around the fence. And that is actually precisely what these Jewish leaders are doing. They had placed laws outside of the biblical laws in order to fence people away from getting too close to breaking one of God's commands. As a result, there were some very interesting practices just overall that were developed out of the Jewish religion. The, uh, the Mishnah is, is kind of this collection of some of the Jewish uh, religious leaders and teachers. And here are some of the, uh, the rules that they encouraged, even enforced, people to obey so that they would stay away from breaking any of the Sabbath laws. They included, it was not right to look in a mirror on the Sabbath. Uh, because then you would be perhaps enticed to pull out a gray hair, and that is work. Uh, You were not allowed to wear your false teeth if you had any on the Sabbath, because what if they fell out? You'd have to pick them up, and that again would be considered work. Just keep them in your mouth, I guess, would be the answer. Um, You were not allowed to carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, because that would be carrying a burden. However, notice that you could wear a handkerchief, So if you had to blow your nose, you could take it off, blow it, and then tie it right back on. That perhaps would be the answer. A little gross, though. Uh, There was a rabbi debate in the Mishnah about if a man who had a wooden leg, if he was allowed to carry it outside if his house was on fire. Um, Again, it would be a tragic situation, obviously. Um, You could spit on the Sabbath, but you could not scruff or rub it in the dirt lest you be guilty of cultivating the soil. All kinds of fences that were put outside of the Mosaic law, that were put outside the Sabbath laws of God for his people. And this is the atmosphere in which Jesus lived. There is this hypersensitivity to breaking the law of God. You think how contrary that is in Jesus' time to the time right before the Babylonian captivity, when they are over and over again, warned of their, uh, certainly their Sabbath breaking and all of the, the laws of God that they are repeatedly violating. And here there is this, what we think of overprotection, like, oh, they're, they're making great choices now, but Jesus calls them out. Just because Israel was now concerned with God's law, it doesn't mean that attention of some or any measure or external observance is what God had ever been requiring. It wasn't just the Sabbath laws that the Pharisees and others had been putting up these fences around, but in the realm of washings as well. It begins with what, actually, Scripture really does have something to say about washings for God's people. There were washings for those who were unclean uh, ceremonially through sickness or through disease. There would be a washing ritual that they were uh, required to go through. There were also ceremonial washings for priests, and the temple service, the sons of Aaron. And in Exodus chapter 30, verse 19, describes such a washing, uh, where before entering uh, the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and their feet with water. Over time, these washings developed into becoming a larger part of everyday life. What was happening was that as Israel became more and more Gentile, if you will, because of the Assyrian attack 
from uh, the 700s BC and from the Babylonian influence during exile, the Jews then felt a greater need for washings due to Gentile exposure. And eventually, simply from going out into this unclean world, and it was into this, again, heightened culture of purification that the gospel account concerns. And if you notice, if you have an ESV Bible in front of you, uh, there is a footnote uh, attached to verse 3, saying that the literal language of washing their hands properly is that they wash their hands with a fist. And while there's a whole bunch of debate as far as what that actually looked like, um, it shows that there was this great uh, precision and uh, overbearing attention that emphasized how out of whack the religious system of the day had become. And here come the disciples, not going through the appropriate ceremonial washing, though they had been out with the Gentiles and the sick and the unclean. I think we would be surprised if we really knew how much our own views of right and wrong, improper and appropriate, really was influenced not by God's Word, but by our own just traditions, our own culture that we live in, whose hands we call defiled, not because of what God's Word has to say, but because it is simply the way we think it ought to be done because of our own upbringing or our view of society, questions about parenting, entertainment, marriage, government, work, schooling, and a host of other areas of life are incredibly flavored by what our traditions have told us are right and wrong. It's simply the air that we breathe. Are we blindly breathing it in and forcing others to comply to our conclusions? Or is there room to eat with hands that haven't been washed in the way that you and I perhaps are demanding? Jesus calls out the Pharisees for having such blindness, for having their own defiled practices. That's actually the second thing that we say is he, is he calls out these defiled practices by the Pharisees. It says there in verse 6, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Stop there. As Jesus is there quoting from Isaiah 29 and verse 13, draws upon the Old Testament prophet to point out the absurdity of the, of the Pharisees by calling them hypocrites. Jesus is not saying that his opponents are insincere. Rather, their false teaching of man-made laws causes them to neglect God's laws. The zeal they have is grossly misplaced. They hunt down offenders of the traditions of Israel, yet they themselves break not man's law, but God's law. 
The words of Isaiah are not only describing the disconnect between uh, the heart and the lips of the hypocrites, but Jesus' use of this text actually even underscores this severe judgment that actually is upon the Pharisees. Isaiah 29, I encourage you to uh, later on this afternoon to go look up Isaiah 29. There are these strong themes all throughout of judgment, especially concerning the Babylonian captivity and the, the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus pulls a text out of a judgment passage, not only for the verse itself, but for the entire theme that is behind it. Jesus' words are words of judgment and woe unto Jerusalem, specifically the Pharisees, who are, like their fathers before them, guilty of hypocritical and external service to God. Hypocrisy is not something to be trifled with. God's handling of hypocrites is severe. It brought judgment upon Israel, and Jesus does not dampen its severity. Hypocrisy is demanding that others heed to your position of government action for the sake of Scripture, yet you are sexually immoral. Hypocrisy is demanding others to obey your form of Bible reading, yet you are tight-fisted with your money. It is holding to the traditions of men while denying the word from the Lord. Jesus, he gives the Pharisees their own example. He, he tells them about this, this Corbin situation that, that they are guilty of. Here's what it is in essence. Let me just summarize it. it is with Corbin, it's actually something that is rooted in Scripture from number six, but like the whole washings, over time, it got twisted in Jesus' day. It, it means that it is a, a gift to God. It is something that you would do when you are giving a vow. Uh, say you are making a vow with your neighbor that you are going to uh, give your neighbor a portion of your, of your crop you know, for the next number of years, whatever it might be. You would then give a gift to God. You would give a, uh, a financial gift or some kind of gift that you would have set aside uh, for the Lord uh, to, to remember as a sign uh, unto the Lord of this vow that you have made. And as there ended up being this strange twisting of, of what a vow really means, uh, perhaps for the sake of something good, but it turned into something bad, uh, people were so fearful of breaking a vow that they then would use that line of thinking to use this Corbin principle to actually keep people away from their money. What they would do is they would say, oh, well, I'm going to make a vow. I'm going to use some of my, my money. Let's say I have this, 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 this amount of, of money that I have uh, set aside as, as in Corbin to give to God, and, but I'm not going to give the money yet. I'm going to give the money 15 years from now. But it's designated. It's set aside. And what they would do is, he's talking about with his parents, these disobedient children for their parents, they have their money, their parents need help, and they were refusing to help their parents with the resources that God had given them, and they would say, no, I can't because that my money, it's Corbin. It's given to God. It's, it's all tied up. I would like to, but if I break this vow, well, then there's going to be a worse punishment than if I just simply try to help out my parents in this. And the Pharisees were justifying this. They said, yes, this is right. This is good. And so people were manipulating the system 
so that they could still get what they wanted to, and the Pharisees were given their approval with it. Thereby, the, the law of honor your father and mother was right out the window. Didn't even matter because of these man-made laws that they wanted to keep instead. Their hypocrisy knew no bounds. Jesus points out that while their actions may appear holy, there is a root and core issue. They have a heart that is far from God. They have a defiled heart. Look there at verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? There actually is this running theme throughout of this section of the disciples' uh, just stubbornness and refusal to listen in chapter 6 and in chapter 7. And this is, again, the continuation of it. Uh, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The most sincere pursuit of purity that even adds washings to the ones prescribed by God is insufficient to purify what is most corrupt and what God desires most. The most sincere pursuit of church attendance is insufficient. The most sincere pursuit of exposing your kids to the gospel, the most sincere pursuit of reading the Bible, the most sincere pursuit of abstaining from sin is insufficient in and of itself to purify what is corrupt and what God desires most, your heart. No amount of Dawn dish detergent applied to the exterior of a cup is going to clean the inside that is crusted and stained and corroding. There's no different here. When we use the term, uh, we'll hear used at times, total depravity, that, that phrase that's used to describe the natural sinful condition that man is born into. He is totally depraved, radically to his very core depraved. It is not that each of us is as wicked as humanly possible. It's that every area of your life, every sphere, every category, every part is tainted and corrupted by sin. And it all originates in the heart. A famous proverb, uh, Proverbs 4.23, reminds us that out of the heart is the wellspring of life. It's a heart corruption problem that flows into every sphere of life. So what is the answer to this? When the people of God were in captivity in Babylon, captivity on account of their hypocrisy and idolatry, and failure to keep the law of God. 
the Lord spoke to them through his prophet Ezekiel. And he says this in Ezekiel 36, sorry, in verse 25. He tells them, he promises them, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The answer is not to try harder. The answer is not to just do better. If you know the hypocrisy in your own heart and you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you need to cry out to the Lord for a new heart. You will never overcome hypocrisy and the judgment that awaits it if God does not take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You will continue to live with a heart that is then filled with evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Perhaps you are here this morning, though, and you have trusted in the work of Christ for your salvation, but you still notice the sin of hypocrisy in your life and still see the workings, what feels like a heart of stone rearing its head, the heart of death that is filled with all kinds of evil. Paul takes up this very issue to the Colossians. In Colossians 3, the, they, were, they were wrestling with this, this new heart that they were given, and, and, and Paul is instructing them on, on what it means to live the life that is found in the new man. He tells them that those earthly passions of hypocrisy and jealousy and immorality are to be mortified, he says, to be put to death. He says, kill them, is what it says. Kill them. And to put on those attributes which reflect our true spiritual calling as God's elect by reminding them that they have died and their new life is hidden with Christ. We are told to let the Word of God dwell in us richly. But, but listen to how he begins that, that whole section. They said to do all of that, but he roots it in something. He says this in Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The sooner we realize that we have died and that we have been raised with Christ, the sooner we lose our taste for those earthly ways. to be dead to those things. Say they have zero grip 
upon me and have zero claim upon my life. They have no rightful claim upon the life of the believer. My life is hidden with Christ in God. Have I set my mind where my life is? What need do I have with death when life is where I am? And my life is secure. It is bound. It is hidden in the shelter of the wings of a Savior who will never forsake me, who will never leave me, in whose grip I can never be snatched out. It is the life and love of our Savior which compels us, compels us to live out of the new hearts we are given in Christ. That this life is given to you, offered to you, is on account of the surprising, although not so surprising, gospel of our God. As we that God is not only concerned with a defiled individual, but actually with a defiled people as well. The defiled people. Look there back in our text, in verse 24, as we have now this account of something that happened that is greatly connected to this exchange that Jesus just had. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. Christ and his kingdom did not show up in the way that the people were expecting. It was not through triumph and power, as we would term it, but through suffering and servitude. Likewise, Christ has come not merely Uh, not really just proclaiming uh, the good news to the Jews, but the gospel is for the Gentiles as well. They they go to uh, Sidon and Tyre, again, this Gentile region. It's actually, it's where the Philistines were. You're going to talk about a people group that were antithetical, that were opposed to the way of the people of God. That is where Tyre was. And here, this Gentile woman who has a demon-possessed daughter, begs Jesus to cast it out. Jesus tells her that he has some for Israel when he says, let the children be fed first. Excuse me, what he has done for Israel when he says, let the children be fed first. But beyond being wise, she is full of faith when she responds that even the dogs get the children's crumbs. She knew the power of Christ. And she knew His power was for all who believe, Gentile dog or not. The gospel that Christ brings was surprising for the Pharisees. Not only because it excludes uh, external pursuits, but because the gospel is for the dogs. 
Beloved, we are the dogs. It is for the Gentiles. It is for the lowly. It is for those who know their weaknesses, their ineptitude, their defilement. Our only hope is outside of us. We need a righteousness that comes from the outside, not one that we can muster up our own. Martin Luther said, we need an alien righteousness. That's what we need. We are but dogs in need of the crumbs which come from the bread which Jesus Christ offers. The appropriate response is to run to Jesus. Run to Jesus Christ who offers us life day after day after day. In Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes this. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Praise God. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, he said this. He said, God doesn't seek for golden vessels and does not ask for silver ones, but he must have clean ones. And beloved, we have Jesus Christ. There's no greater vessel upon which we can be cleansed than Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the gift of Christ. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that, God, even though we are lost in sin apart from you, you offer us salvation. God, even our very laying a hold of Christ is not even in and of ourselves, but that is a gift from you. It is your Holy Spirit working that in us. We can take no claim upon the salvation which we can hold on to. But yet it is ours firmly because of Christ. Lord, grip our hearts with this truth today. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.